Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Feel free to download these audio files and share them with your friends and family. Please consider joining Beth Emanuel's virtual community and support our efforts for the kingdom by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. Menashe woke up with a start. He rubbed his tired eyes as his feet hit the cold floor. It was almost daybreak, and he knew his father liked to start the day early, so he threw on his headdress and tunic as he started down the palace hallway towards his father's breakfast area. His father was already hard at work as a morning sun peeked through the horizon of the desert sand. Menashe grabbed a papyrus scroll and made his presence known as he bowed to his father, who was busy directing the palace courtiers in their various duties. Maybe today will be the day, pondered Menashe as he made his way to his father's side. Yosef cleared the room with a wave of his hand, and suddenly Yosef and his son Menashe were the only ones left in his father's office chambers. Is today the day we write my grandfather and uncles, inquired Menashe with a hopeful tone. His father shook his head, his eyes welling up with tears, as he tried to compose himself. Not today, my son, Yosef responded, wiping away his tears as he straightened himself and adjusted his royal regalia. Menashe gave a disappointing sigh, and Yosef acknowledged his son's discouragement. Maybe tomorrow, my son, maybe tomorrow. As Menashe made his way to breakfast with his mother and brother, he wondered when he would get the chance to finally address the grandfather and uncles in Canaan that he heard so many stories about. Today, we start the Yosef trilogy with Parshat Vayeshev. We begin this three-part narrative that will span the next two weeks with the introduction to a dysfunctional family. The Parsha begins with a surprising statement. Jacob dwelled in the land of his father's sojournings and the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob, Yosef. We would expect verse 2 to read, these are the generations of Yaakov. Yaakov begot Reuben, Shimon, Levi, etc. But the verse takes a surprising turn when all it does is introduce us to Yosef. Parsha continues, Yosef was 17 years old, being a shepherd. He was with his brother with the flocks, and he was a lad. And he was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Yosef brought evil tales about them to their father. And Yisrael loved Yosef more than all his sons. What's going on? Could it be that our patriarch Yaakov is playing favorites with his sons? Perhaps he considered Yosef his true firstborn. Why is Yosef Avinu bringing tales about his brothers? There's a huge debate in the commentaries, both contemporary and ancient, as to whether Yaakov's family was what we might call dysfunctional, and if we can say such a thing about our patriarchs. One could posit that the brothers had a spiritual yet misguided mission to, quote, do away with Yosef. Let's quote the popular Chumash commentator Rabbi Menachem Leibtag, who goes in this direction, and we'll be pulling a couple more quotes from him in the future as well. We will quote him at length here in order to give this position justice. Had Yosef been a bit more righteous in his brother's eyes, they may have conceded to his destiny as either the, quote-unquote, leader or the, quote-unquote, chosen son. However, their perception of Yosef's characters troubled them. In their eyes, Yosef was a slanderer, and Yosef brought bad reports, diba ra'a, of his brothers and to their father, Bereshit, Genesis 37-2. The brothers, aware of the challenges facing God's special nation, recognized the need for exemplary leadership. Could Yosef possibly assume this role? To the brothers, the mere thought of Yosef the slanderer becoming the leader was horrific. 
From their perspective, it was simply unthinkable that Yosef could assume the leadership of a nation destined by God to be characterized by tzedek umishpat, righteousness and justice. They conclude, Yosef must be weeded out. An ideal opportunity, for the brothers that is, arises when Yosef arrives at Dotan to visit them. In order to dispose of this menace, they plot first to kill him. Later, they opt to sell him off to a distant land. Out of respect and concern for their father, they will dip Yosef's coat in blood so that Yaakov will think that he was truly dead. Hopefully, the father will finally realize that Yosef was a Nidche, rejected. Rabbi Leibtag attempts to spiritualize the brothers' actions, yet the text seems to leap off the page with jealousy and contempt as the brothers speak sarcastically about Yosef. And they saw him from afar. And when he had not yet drawn near to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. So they said to one another, Behold, that dreamer is coming. So now let us kill him. And we will cast him into one of the pits. And we will say, A wild beast devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. Bereshi, Genesis 37, 18-20 This seems like a good example of a dysfunctional family, all right. The father openly playing favorites, the brothers with a sense of jealousy that leads to murderous envy, the favorite child constantly bringing slanderous reports against his brothers, and so on. On the other hand, to say such a thing about our spiritual heroes leaves us devoid of those spiritual heroes. But on the other hand, the text seems to indicate dysfunctionality and portrays the humanity of these biblical men and women. Wherever we land on this question, one thing is for sure. Yaakov and his family make what amounts to be conflicting characters in our narrative. Every day during Shacharit prayer, we begin with a section of blessings that thank Hashem and or recognize His hand in all aspects of our lives. When we make a blessing over Torah study, we recite three passages, well, four according to some Messianic Sidurim, a passage from the Torah, a passage from the Mishnah, and the passage from the Talmud. Talmudic passage quotes for us something very intriguing and telling. These are the matters that a person who does them enjoys their profits in this world, and nevertheless the principle exists for him in the world to come, and they are. Honoring one's father and mother, acts of loving kindness, bringing peace between a person and another, but Torah study is equal to all of them. Shabbat 127a. It's very telling that this list begins with the mitzvah known as kibud avem, honoring one's father and mother, and it's also very interesting that the mitzvah begins with one's father. Some commentators have referred to this as one of the most difficult of the mitzvot due to the push and pull factors in one's relationships with his or her parents. The year was 1976, on the heels of the 1977 riots in the South Central Los Angeles, when Thomas Amick knocked on Penny Levitt's door as part of a neighborhood awareness program regarding some recent break-ins. Numbers were exchanged, and sometime later, Thomas stood under a chuppah, keep on his Gentile head while a Reformed rabbi married the two. A year later, a pregnant Penny, now surnamed Amick, sat in a movie theater watching the debut of Star Wars, and some months later, yours truly was born. I've spoken about my assimilated upbringing in the past and identified it as lox and bagels, Christmas and Easter. However, I've never talked about the darker side of my upbringing and how it's affected me to this day. In 1982, after an on-duty injury, my father became a retired LAPD officer and an alcoholic for the next decade plus of my life. A product of a dysfunctional family himself, my father ruled the family through fear and intimidation, sprinkled with a heavy dose of frustration as his ADHD, then it was known as just being hyperactive, firstborn was constantly buzzing about. 
Bouts of physical and verbal abuse reigned in our family, my mother and me taking the brunt of it, she more than I, of course. In turn, I grew up a frustrated and ultimately became a rebellious kid, as I've talked about on a previous occasion. My father was not all bad, mind you. He performed the proverbial fatherly duties, such as teaching me to tie my shoes, playing catch in the yard, and, and working hard to put food on the table, a table he once flipped over at a dinner due to a fit of anger. Yaakov Avinu was similar. He was a similar conflicted character, if we can say such a thing. A liar and a cheat in his younger years, he maneuvered against his own twin brother to steal the birthright and then had to flee for his life to escape that same fratricidal brother. After surviving two decades with the wicked Lavan, Yaakov was left with close to 20 mouths to feed, not counting multiple servants and livestock, who wouldn't go crazy with this kind of background. Our Torah portion reads, V'yeshev Yaakov be'eretz migure aviv be'eretz kana'an. Yaakov settled the land of his father's alienation slash wanderings, the land of Canaan. Bereshit, Genesis 37, verse 1. Rabbi Ari Khan speaks about the contrast in this verse over the settling and the alienation slash wandering and points out that Yaakov lived in a conflicted life and transferred this to his son Yosef. It's obvious from the next verse, as we pointed out above, that Yaakov had an unhealthy favoritism for Yosef. Was it his family of origin's own dark past of the murderous relationship he had with his own twin brother Esau that led to Yosef's fate? The text drips with ambiguity as to the source of Yosef's travails, but one thing is certain as we will see. Hashem was working behind the scenes. Flash forward some two decades and we meet up with the main character of our trilogy as he assumes the role of Viceroy, second in command only to Pharaoh, of all Egypt during a severe famine in the Middle East. The stage is set for Yosef's plans, which have been guided by multiple divinely directed dreams of an economic infrastructure to deal with an international trade, and that's in place. And Yosef's brother will surely need to make the necessary pilgrimage in order to procure food. Sure enough, at Yaakov's direction, the brothers make the arduous voyage across the Sinai Desert to inquire of provisions for the family. Upon reaching Egypt, the brothers are ushered by the head of the Food and Labor Department to none other than the Vice President of all of Egypt. Not knowing if this is a good or bad thing, the brothers prepare for a potentially ominous meeting with Tzafna Paneach, the Viceroy of Egypt. At this juncture, we need to pause and ask some pertinent questions. Why was this Yosef's plan? What was he hoping to accomplish? And the most famous question of all is why didn't Yosef write home? Let's examine that last in the series of questions in order to have a basis on which to figure out Yosef's plan. Ever since he was sold to the Potiphar and rose in the ranks within Potiphar's house, Yosef had, had the means to contact his father and brothers. Indeed, the 14th century Spanish commentator Ramban asks our question. After Yosef stayed in Egypt for many years and became chief and overseer in the house of a great lord in Egypt, how is it possible that he did not send a single letter to his father to inform him of, of his whereabouts and comfort him? As Egypt is only about a six-day journey from Hebron, Ramban, on Bereshit, Genesis 42, verse 9. It is a simple line of questioning that has led many Torah commentators to spill much ink in trying to construct an approach to Yosef's actions or lack thereof. Ranban himself 
answers his own question by pointing out that it's unthinkable that Yosef would be delinquent in, on the mitzvah of honoring one's parents. Ranban concludes that Yosef must have had some spiritual insight based on the fulfillment of his dreams as a boy that he mustn't contact his family. This approach is taken a task by a variety of commentators. One of them, Rabbi Leibtag, quoting Rabbi Yoel Ben-Nun's controversial article in the journal on Chinuch, teacher training, it takes issue with the Ranban. Ranban's basic claim is that Yosef feels obligated to ensure the actualization of his dreams. It is unthinkable that Yosef could cause such suffering to his father simply because of a dream. Rav Yoel also concludes that the Peshat, or simple meaning of the Parsha, indicates that Yosef remembered his dreams only after the brothers came. During the approximately 20 years before him, his dreams seemed to have been forgotten. How are we to understand Yosef's actions? Well, the 15th century Portuguese commentator, Abarvanel, goes in a different direction from Ramban. Abarvanel understands Yosef's motivation is to bring his brothers to teshuva, repentance for their actions. Indeed, this seems to answer the question of why Yosef puts them through this elaborate ruse of accusing them of being spies. Recalling the dreams that he had had, he had dreamt about them, Yosef said to them, You are spies, you have come to see the land and its nakedness. But they said to him, No, my lord, truly your servants have come to procure food. We are all sons of the same man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. We, your servants, were twelve brothers, sons of a certain man in the land of Canaan. The youngest, however, is now with our father, and one is no more. Bray sheet, Genesis 42.9, verses 11-13. Let's consider this interchange for a moment. Some 20 years have passed since those fateful events of the brothers' capture, imprisonment of Yosef in the pit, and eventual sale of Yosef. He is hoping that at this point they, they have made teshuva and have searched high and low for their brother, realizing that the Yishmaelim, the Ishmaelites, were traitors and often ended up in Egypt. The brothers have now come to spy out the quote-unquote nakedness of the land. What does Yosef mean here? One rather literal way of ta- taking this is the seedier or the red light district areas of Egypt. After all, where would they expect someone like Yosef to end up, especially with his good looks? Was, what was Yosef's response to them? Yosef said, he is the one I spoke about saying you are spies. The text of the Torah and this was probably deliberate on the part of Yosef, is ambiguous at this point. The Hebrew word who could mean he, referring to the one of the brothers who was, quote, no more. Or the word can mean that, referring to the nakedness of the land, i.e. the weak, weak points or the vulnerable points ripe for infiltration. Yosef is hoping that the brothers take the bait and right then and there ask of their long-lost brothers' whereabouts, but to no avail. At age 16, I had a powerful, spiritually transformational experience when I became a follower of our Rabbi Yeshua. Nightly, I would be in my room on my knees, fasting and praying for the salvation of my family as my parents fought loudly in the next room. One day, I thought, the heavens had parted and all hope was not lost when I invited them to church and they accepted. That Sunday morning, we scurried about in our home in a mad dash to get ready and make the morning service. We all broke out in laughter 
when my father cursed out the inept driver on the road to services. Move, I'm trying to get to expletive church. <laughs> there we sat, listening to the worship band play, seeing my mother's eyes fill with tears and hearing the sermon. I thought for sure at the end of the sermon, my prayer and fasting would pay off as I'd see my family accept the altar call. But heartbreakingly, nothing happened. We attended church a handful of times, but each time there was no response of broken teshuva on my father's part. It was heart-wrenching, and I wondered why my plan had not worked. What do we do when everything seems to line up but doesn't work? Family, brothers, sisters, parents, uncles, and aunties, and cousins can be some of the closest and most frustrating individuals in our lives. Family riffs being on non-speaking terms, rude and biting comments, well-placed barbs meant to belittle us, to outright abuse can plague our familiar relationships. So much so that oftentimes we've either maturely distanced ourselves on the one hand or just given up any hope that they'll ever change on the other hand. We'll pray for friends and strangers alike, but we'll give up on Hashem ever changing our family. That's a little bit too tall of an order for Hashem after all. What do we do in the face of all this disappointment? What do we do in the face of Hashem not answering our pleas? Do we give up? Or like our forefather Yosef, go to plan B? Okay, Hashem, so maybe that's not the way you wanted to touch them. So maybe this will work. Upon hearing his brother speak of 12 sons, Yosef figures that perhaps all has not been lost. After all, had the brothers learned from their grave sins? How do they treat his younger brother? Yosef had to see with his own eyes. On the third day, Yosef said to them, Do this and you shall live, for I am a God-fearing man. If you are honest men, let one of you, brothers, be held in your place of detention, while the rest of you go and take home rations for your starving households. But you must bring me your youngest brother, that your words must may be verified, and that you may not die. Brashit Genesis 42, 18-20 How will the brothers respond? Will they stick up for Binyamin or simply toss him aside and be unwilling to step in his place? To be sure, none of the irony was lost on the part of the brothers as they regrettably uttered, Alas, we're being punished on account of our brother Yosef because we looked on at anguish yet paid no heed as he pleaded with us. That is why all this distress has come upon us. Verse 21 it seems that Yosef realized that they put two and two together, but he had to be sure as he followed through with plan B and muster resolve to his tear-stained cheeks. He turned away from them and wept, but he came back to them and spoke to them. And he took Shimon from among them and had him bound before their eyes. Verse 24. It hit me like a punch in the gut. At age 20, I now was studying at a prestigious university, had connected with a circle of friends, and thought everything was on track when tragedy struck. My parents got divorced. How could this happen? Didn't Hashem hate divorce, as the prophet Malachi says? Doesn't our rabbi bid us, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Mark eleven twenty four. I'd like to tell you that I had the resolve that our, for, uh, our forefather Yosef had in the face of an unanswered prayer and the ununderstandable providence of Hashem's plan, but I didn't. 
I was plunged into despair, depression, and ultimately agnosticism. Through the fog of my own flawed theological framework, I struggled to hold on to a shred of belief. All told, really, I was mad at Hashem. How could he? Didn't he promise? What do we do when not only does our plan A not come to fruition, but our plan B as well? What do we do when not only do our loved ones or those whom we're supposed to love, but have complicated relationships with, make irreversible poor decisions, develop a sickness, or worse, leave this world altogether? On the 19th of Kislev, just a couple days ago this week, in the year 2013, my father, blessed memory, entered the world of truth. God was his ability to make teshuva in this world. God was my father's opportunity to make restoration, but also God was my chance to reconcile with my father. You see, I, like our father Yosef, had chosen not to contact my father for the past several years before his passing after a lifetime of abuse. We return to our above question. What was Yosef's reason for not contacting his father and brothers? Maybe there's a different angle that we might not have considered. Maybe the question is the opposite. Let me explain. To explain Yosef's behavior, we can suggest that he might not have known that his father believed that he was dead. Perhaps Yosef assumed that the brothers knew of his sale to Egypt, and hence he expected his father and or his brothers to search out his whereabouts and come to his rescue. If not his brothers, surely his father would find out that he was sold and demand that the brothers trace the sale and then go back to Egypt to buy him back. Was that why they were here now? thought Yosef. But upon finding no mention of any plan to find their long-lost brother, Yosef returned to what might have been his original conclusion. Maybe his father was in on the sale. As Rabbi Leibtech puts it, Yosef is totally unaware that the brothers had tricked their father with the blood-stained coat. He has no idea that his father presumed that he was killed by a wild animal. The months pass and nothing happens. Yosef begins to wonder why no one has come to look for him. Does his father no longer care about him? Why did the brothers throw him into a pit as soon as he arrived? Why does his father send him out alone on such a long journey to see his brothers who hated him? Slowly, Yosef comes to the realization that Yaakov must have received some divine decree that Yosef is rejected, and only Leah's children and not Rachel's had been chosen. This point even suggests that Yosef may have entertained the thought this entire conspiracy to sell him may have been coordinated by his father. How do we understand the familial failings in our lives? Even the best homeschooling, Halloween slash perm, costume making, loving parents inevitably fail. We all receive some sort of dysfunction, disappointment, or simply being on the receiving end of our parents' failings. Perhaps it's not our parents, though. Perhaps it's a child or children that don't live up to our expectations. What do we do then? Does our quote-unquote father have some sort of divine conspiracy against us? How do we reconcile all the prayers, love, and attention we give our children with their wayward actions? Or on the other hand, how do we get closure when a loved one with whom we had a complicated relationship has died. Like our Yosef saga, we must realize that the story is not done yet. This can be compared to a person who suggests that his or her friend watch their favorite movie. Halfway through the movie, when the good guy is tied up, or the couple that's meant to be breaks up, or when all hope seems lost, your friend simply abruptly gets up and mutters, what a horrible movie, and leaves. How do you plead with him 
to remind him or her that you have to stay till the end. The movie's not done yet. Alternatively, one could suggest that Yosef, because he was sold to by his brothers, might feel rejected by his family. Even in the face of his father's love for him, he may have preferred to begin a new life rather than live with his abusive brothers. Definitely a rather understandable reaction for a 17-year-old. Regardless of what may have become known back on the home front after his sale, Yosef is convinced that he has been abandoned by his family. Accepting his fate, Yosef decides to cut ties from his family and childhood dreams. He will now make a new name for himself in Egypt, and he can even integrate a sham into his new chosen society, despite not being part of the chosen nation. This tragic misunderstanding can explain why Yosef, even after rising to power, never contacted his family and seemed to settle into Egyptian life so nicely. Yosef's new life is now interpreted by the circumstances of his brother's request for provisions. How will he handle it? Have they truly made teshuva? Upon demanding that they bring Binyamin to him, will he find a mistreated and abused younger brother? Or could his ultimate fears be true? His father has rejected him and his mother's lying. Yosef hatches a third plan, this time returning the very funds to, that his brothers had paid in exchange for their provisions. Then Yosef gave orders to fill their bags with grain, returned each one's money to a sack, and gave them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. As one of them was opening his sack to give feed to his donkey at the night encampment, he saw his money right there at the mouth of his bag. And he said to his brothers, My money has been returned. It's here in my bag. Their hearts sank, and trembling, they turned to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? What has Hashem done to us indeed? Why do our loved ones cause us to suffer? My own personal story advances in, into my mid-20s, 30s, and now 40s. I've now established myself in the Messianic movement, became an, uh, known as an aspiring Bible student and rabbi in training, long training, as in still waiting for acceptance of that ordination program that will have me. I'm invited to preach sermons like this one, looked upon to give basic halakhic advice, it's still the same old rebellious teenager in my family's eyes. However, I personally strive to remember that I must daily remind myself that the story is not over, and I must not cut myself off from my family. Their stories are still being written too. Our natural urge is to cut ourselves off from those with whom we don't share the same values, the same way of life, and the same outlook on the path ahead. But this is a mistake. It's a mistake to think that when Hashem calls us to love our neighbor, that our neighbors are the ones that look like us, talk like us, think like us, or, and a part of us. After all, doesn't a rabbi say, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Lucas 6.32 We're oftentimes called to love the unlovable because aren't we all unlovable at times too? We must realize that our closest neighbors are, fa are family members themselves. Now, I'm not saying that one must embrace abusive people or not demonstrate tough love. One can love someone from afar. A parent went to the Holy Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, you know, the men in the long black coats with the furry hats and side curls, and asked about how she could bring her wayward son back. Was there some type of special prayer? Was there a holy permutation of Hashem's name to utter? A special mitzvah to do? He gently responded that you must love him even more. 
What do these words tell us? It seems that the Baal Shem Tov understood the concept that our own rabbi displayed so well on the cross, the concept of unconditional love, as he uttered some of his last words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Lucas 23:34. When plans A through C fail, we must realize that Hashem has many more letters in the alphabet, or even the Aleph bait. The story isn't over until Hashem says it is. But our part is our part. When it comes to that unconditional love, we have to pay it forward to our loved ones. And yes, even the ones that are the hardest to love. The other result is a life of bitterness, unhealthiness, and immaturity. When all is said and done, after Yosef is reconciled with his family, and at the passing of Yaakov, his brothers thought, this is it. This is when our brother takes his revenge. What was Yosef's response? What did he finally understand? It was all part of Hashem's plan. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Brashit Genesis 50 verse 20. I'd be rather remiss if I didn't have my sort of, quote, altar call at this point. So I'm revising the end of an earlier sermon I gave that dovetails nicely with Yosef's saga. It was common practice in Shaul's day to use a scribe as a secretary to record letters. I can imagine him asking for the quill to write the closing paragraph to, his, to this letter in his own handwriting, probably in order to prevent forgery. See second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 17, as he summarizes the central point of his letter. For brothers... I want you to understand the truth which God formerly concealed but now has revealed so that you won't imagine you know more than you actually do. It is that stoniness to a degree has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters in its fullness. And that is in this way that all Israel will be saved. Letter to the Romans chapter 16 verses 25 through 26. Here, Shaul sees the divine orchestration of Israel's hardness of heart as a chesed, as a kindness that Hashem is allowing for the nations to gain entrance to worship the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Shaul continues later reminding followers of our master from the nations that if the Jewish people's casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what were their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. Romans 11.15 this mystery that Shaul reveals undergirds the summary verse of a prophecy of Moshe's towards the end of the Torah that he received before his death. And I will surely hide my face on that day because of all the evil that, have, that they have committed when they turn to other deities. Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 18. There's a curious turn of phrase embedded in the Hebrew in this verse that belong, that begs to be expounded on. The verse talks about Hester Panim, that is, the hiding of Hashem's face, but he uses a double language in Hebrew. Haster, Astir, Panai, B'yomahu. This translates literally as, in hiding, I shall hide my face on that day. This double hiddenness can be best expressed as, the fact that Hashem is hidden will be hidden. To what can this be compared? This can be compared to our forefather Joseph, Joseph Avino. In his ascension to Viceroy, Joseph Avino was transformed into Tzafna Paneach. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Tzafna Paneach. And Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Bereshit, Genesis 41, 45. 
This essentially disguised him as an Egyptian regal and thereby made him unrecognizable to his brothers. And Yosef recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Chapter 42, verse 8. The simultaneous result of Yosef's transformation was that it also masked his background and status as a Hebrew to the Egyptians. Yosef was now fully Egyptian, and any vestige of his true status was either obscured and or forgotten. The same application can be said of our master. He has been completely disguised, given different names, virtually any trace of his status and national identity as the king of Israel has been subsumed into his foreign garb. In the same way that our master's own modern-day brothers don't recognize him, his followers might only have a faint memory of his Judaism, but have now transformed him into a Gentile, one of us. The fact that the Messiah of Israel is wrapped up in an unrecognizable package and tucked away in one of the most unthinkable of places among foreigners is indeed an extreme example of Hester Panim. This example of Hester Panim, the hiddenness of Hashem, is at once called the mystery of the gospel, Shaul described above, and an explanation for our dysfunction with our Heavenly Father. One can look back at one's life to this point and wonder where Hashem has been. Why didn't Hashem prevent all of my tragedies? Why does He seem silent and why hasn't He sent me a letter or even a text? To answer these questions, we can paraphrase Yosef's words. What my abusive relative, wayward son or daughter, sarcastic biting uncle or aunt, family tragedy meant for evil, God meant for good. Take on my yoke and learn from it and find rest for your soul.